You may be seated. And when you are, please open your copies of God's Word to the book of Romans. Uh, We're continuing our trek through the book of Romans. Today we are in chapter 3. In particular, we're going to be looking at Romans 3, verses 21 through 31. But we're going to start our reading at verse 9. And that'll give us a reminder of where uh, we were last week and then paved the way for the context for where we are this week. Uh, You know that um, Paul has been indicting the uh, entire world, both Jew and Gentile, everybody, and showing them um, why they need Jesus, why they need the gospel. And he has um, just been speaking to the Jews and telling them, don't uh, think that just because you have um, uh, the covenants and you uh, possess the word of God and you have uh, the sign of circumcision and so forth, that these things save you. And then uh, he turns here where we're going to begin reading uh, today and it gives us kind of the God's word, the indictment of the word of God for all humanity. Um, I would remind you, this is God's holy inspired word. Romans chapter three, beginning at verse nine. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. 
For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask that you would help us this morning. Lord, you know the many distractions that surround us. You know the distractions of the past week. You know the distractions of the week ahead. You know the distractions of our own broken minds. And so, Lord, we pray that you would come around us now, uh, that you would focus our minds and our thinking, that you would help us to hear and have the discipline to hear. And Lord, we do pray that you would make your preacher transparent, that we might hear your word. We would ask, O Lord, that you would speak to us, change us, help us, encourage us, rebuke us, Give us all that we need. Lord, we would ask these things in Jesus' name and for your glory's sake. Amen. Well, you have likely heard of uh, Martin Luther. You know that he uh, nailed his 95 thesis on a door in 1517, and that was part of what sparked the uh, Protestant Reformation, a revival Uh, of God on his church. But before that, Martin Luther struggled with a a troubled conscience. He, He was a devout monk who had spent countless, countless hours in confession and fasting and performing various acts of penance in an attempt to earn his salvation. However, he always felt like he felt short of God's perfect standard and made him miserable. He was miserable. And one day while studying Romans 1.17 and our passage here in Romans 3, Luther had a breakthrough He realized that the righteousness of God was not something that we earned through our works, but rather it was a a gift that was freely given to us through Jesus. He wrote, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. Luther felt the joy and freedom that God gives to all of us in the gospel. He experienced the peace and the security and the assurance that comes from knowing that our righteousness is based on Christ's works, not our own efforts. This truth is beautifully expressed in verse 24 of our text where it states that we are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption found in Jesus. Luther's experience illustrates how the message of the righteousness of God imputed to us through faith 
in Christ can put a troubled conscience to ease. Just as Luther was set free from the burden of trying to earn his salvation, we too can find peace by trusting in Christ's work on the cross and receiving the gift of righteousness that comes through faith. And for us Christians, it's to continue to hold on to it, isn't it? Not to go back, but to remind ourselves of this gospel again and again, day after day, hour after hour at times. Well, how does Paul's message about the righteousness of God address the universal struggle of conscience, of guilt? And why should Christians rejoice in this message? Today, we'll explore these questions, starting with our first heading, the problem of conscience. The problem of conscience As the book of Romans begins, the Apostle Paul presents a sobering case against humanity. He explains humanity's universal predicament of sin and their desperate need for God's righteousness. He declares that all people, regardless of their moral or religious background, have fallen short of God's perfect standard. And he emphasizes the futility of relying on our own works or achievements to attain right standing. Paul says that every person stands guilty before God's righteous judgment. None is righteous. No, not one. And he concludes the previous section of his letter by stating, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And then Paul opens in verse 21 with the words, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Notice that a special righteousness exists separate from the works of the law. The phrase apart from the law shows us that right standing before God cannot be earned by doing good works. The law reveals our sin and shows us our need for a savior, but it cannot save us. It exposes our sin and guilt, causing our conscience to accuse us before God. The law can't make anyone righteous. It reveals our inability to perfectly fulfill its requirements. The law sets a high standard of righteousness, demanding, demanding obedience to its commandments in every aspect of life. It exposes our sinfulness and acts like a mirror reflecting our guilt. It reveals the depth of our fallen nature and our tendency to break God's commands. 
The law not only identifies and condemns our transgressions, but it also amplifies our awareness of our inability to attain righteousness through our own efforts. Our attempts to earn righteousness through our, only, through our own works only adds to our guilt. Additionally, the law operates on a principle of works-based righteousness where one standing before God is based on their own performance and obedience to the commandments. However, this approach is flawed because even if someone could keep most of the commandments, they would still fail at some point resulting in guilt before God. And consider verse 23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This verse highlights the universal condition of humanity in relation to sin and the standard of God's glory. Every individual, without exception, has engaged in sinful thoughts and words and actions. I have. You have. We all have. This verse affirms that we have violated God's perfect standard of righteousness and have failed to meet his holy requirements. Sin has affected every aspect of our being, tarnishing our thoughts and our desires and our actions. The phrase, fall short of the glory of God, directs our attention to the supreme standard we have failed to meet. God's glory represents his perfect and unblemished nature, his holiness, his righteous character. It's who he is in his essence. As sinners, we are unable to achieve or reach the level of perfection and holiness that God's glory demands. Our sinful state creates a separation between us and God, hindering us from fully experiencing or reflecting his glorious nature. When we sin, our conscience becomes burdened and troubled Sin carries the weight of guilt and conviction. We feel guilty with a a deep sense of wrongdoing or remorse for past actions, for our thoughts, for our choices. We experience inner turmoil and restlessness or unease because of unresolved guilt or moral conflicts. A burdened conscience can lead to feelings of self-disgust and of worthlessness or shame. And then what happens? We begin to avoid situations or people that remind us of our guilt and our wrongdoing. We struggle to find inner peace or a sense of well-being When our conscience is burdened, it disrupts our ability to experience true peace and contentment because it's constantly preoccupied with feelings of guilt and remorse. And then we 
can feel overwhelmed and paralyzed when making choices, fearing making the wrong ones will only add to our burden of guilt. And God is aware of all of this. He's aware of all of this. And that's why he provides forgiveness, a clean slate, a fresh start. It's all taken care of. He provides healing. He provides righteousness apart from the law. That's what it says in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The righteousness of God has been revealed in Jesus. In Jesus, God gives us a righteousness that we do not have and that we cannot earn. It's apart from the law. And the saving righteousness is received by faith. Who's it available to? Verse 22 says, all who believe. It's not limited to a particular group. And it's not dependent on the severity of one's sins. Scripture teaches that God's grace and forgiveness is extended to all who come to him in repentance and faith. The offer of God's righteousness extends to all who believe regardless of the past or the magnitude of the sins. And as we acknowledge the weight of our troubled conscience and our inability to save ourselves, a deep longing for a solution emerges. Thankfully, Paul unveils the remarkable provision of righteousness that God has made available to us. That's our second heading, the provision of righteousness. The provision of righteousness. You'll notice that at the end of verse 22, Paul says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift. In verse 20, Paul said that no one would be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. But now he declares that a righteousness of God has been made known apart from the law so that it can justify anyone who believes by his grace as a gift. It was probably in 1519, when Martin Luther had his second great theological breakthrough. It was his new understanding of what the New Testament means by justification. When the Bible uses the word justify, it means to declare righteous in a legal sense. When a judge pronounces a not guilty verdict on an accused person, 
so that the law has no moral quarrel with that person. This is what the scripture means by justification. So justification is a forensic act. It's a legal act. It is the act of a judge declaring a person right in the eyes of the law. And the basis on which God the judge declares sinners righteous is not our own merit, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself, which God graciously reckons on our account by his grace as a gift. Imagine a student who consistently fails to complete their assignments or perform well in class. And despite their repeated failures, the teacher decides to grant them a passing grade and he offers extra tutoring sessions to help the student improve. The student didn't deserve or earn this favor, but it is freely given out of the teacher's kindness and desire to see them succeed. The act of the teacher showing mercy and providing help when it wasn't deserved illustrates grace. Similarly, in our relationship with God, we are like a struggling student, constantly falling short and unable to meet God's perfect standards. Yet God extends his grace to us by offering forgiveness and salvation and the opportunity to grow in a relationship with him. We don't deserve it, but he freely gives it to us because of his love and mercy. We're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption refers to the act of buying back or setting someone or something free from captivity. It refers to setting someone free from bondage or slavery through the payment of a price. It carries the idea of deliverance and liberation and restoration. Redemption centers around the redemptive work of Christ. Through his sacrificial death on the cross, Jesus paid the price for our sins and offers redemption to all who believe in him. His blood became the ransom that sets us free from the power and penalty of sin. Through redemption, we have set, been set free from the bondage of sin and invited into a new life and purpose and hope and with an eternal fellowship with God. In verse 25, you'll see that God puts Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation refers to the act of appeasing or satisfying the wrath of God through a sacrificial offering. It involves the idea of a substitutionary sacrifice that brings about reconciliation between God and humanity. Jesus, as the perfect and spotless Lamb of God, offered himself as a sacrifice to atone for the sins of his people. His death satisfied God's righteous anger and wrath towards sin, making it possible for sinners to be forgiven and reconciled to God. That's what 
the table that sits before us represents the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus given in exchange for you. We receive the gift of God's grace through faith. And God's grace provides profound peace that eases the troubled conscience in several ways. First, through the forgiveness of sins. God's grace offers us a pathway to have our guilt removed and our sins washed away. This reconciliation to God brings a deep sense of peace to our hearts and alleviates the burden of guilt that weighs on our conscience. Jesus paid the ultimate price to give you the freedom of burden in your conscience. He gave it to you to liberate you, to give you a freedom not weighed down by sins of the past, even knowing that sins of the future are covered. He wants you to be free, free of condemnation. He wants you to be able to rest in him. Don't pick that up again. Second, God's grace justifies us and imputes the righteousness of Christ to us through faith. This declaration of righteousness before God assures us of our acceptance and approval in his sight, bringing profound peace to our conscience. Furthermore, God's grace grants us access to his presence. Through Christ, we have a restored relationship with God and we can approach him with confidence. This closeness to God and the ability to seek his guidance brings us comfort. He hears us and he answers specifically. He answers you. And this all, it gives us assurance and brings us an abiding peace in our hearts. But you'll notice that through Christ's sacrifice, God demands mercy and justice simultaneously. Not demands, he demonstrates mercy and, and justice simultaneously. Consider what the text says about the atonement in the middle of verse 25. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, the sacrifice of Christ displays God's justice by upholding the principle that sin must be punished, satisfying God's righteousness. Through Jesus' sacrificial death, God poured out his wrath against sin, fulfilling the demands of justice and the law. The cross reveals the seriousness of sin and the depth of God's justice. It showcases his perfect character by executing judgment upon sin, ensuring that it doesn't go unpunished. And additionally, the sacrifice of Christ unveils God's boundless love and mercy. In his justice, he provided a way for sinners to be redeemed. Jesus willingly 
took your place, bearing the punishment you deserve, granting you forgiveness and justification. The sacrifice of Christ demonstrates God's justice by punishing sin while revealing his love and mercy. It's through the cross that justice and mercy intersect, offering forgiveness and reconciliation to sinners. As we reflect on the sacrifice of Christ, which beautifully demonstrates God's justice and love and mercy, we're led to consider the practice of faith. That's our third heading, the practice of faith. Paul moves from providing explanations to exploring implications of the gospel After examining the gospel from different angles, he now addresses our hearts and relationships in light of these truths. In verse 27, he writes, Then what comes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Human works play no part in achieving God's righteousness. Did you earn your salvation? No. Did you work for it? No. Then what are you boasting about? We're justified by God's grace as a gift. When it comes to salvation, boasting is unthinkable. The gospel, you see, humbles believers by exposing our sinfulness and our inability to save ourselves. It reminds us of our dependence on God's grace and mercy. The gospel confronts our pride and our self-righteousness. It highlights that salvation is solely by God's unmerited favor. And recognizing our unworthiness and God's love should lead us to gratitude and should give us some humility. We should respond to the gospel with gratitude and worship, expressing our thankfulness for the undeserved gift of salvation. And our gratitude should produce humility that shows compassion and empathy towards others, extending mercy just as we have received it. We receive salvation as a gift You see that Paul contrasts the law of faith with the law of works in verse 28. The law of faith emphasizes that righteousness is received through faith in Jesus, not by human effort. It highlights that salvation by grace alone is through faith alone. This principle acknowledges that our righteousness is a gift from God, obtaining obtained by trust in Christ's work, not our own effort. It shifts our reliance from ourselves to God's grace and Christ's finished work. Thus, the law of faith underscores the importance of faith as a means to receive God's righteousness and to be justified. Martin Luther defined faith as a living, bold trust in God's grace so certain of God's favor that it would risk death a thousand times trusting in it. 
Luther emphasized that true faith was not mere intellectual assent or adherence to religious rituals, but a deep personal trust in God's grace and mercy. Faith is a confident reliance on God's promises. It's a self-abandoning trust in the free and sovereign mercy of God. And it's faith in the gospel that's the basis of Christian unity. In verse 29, Paul asks, is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Paul emphasizes that God is not only the God of the Jews, but also the Gentiles, uniting them in the gospel. There's no distinction between these groups in terms of their need for salvation or the way they received it. Both Jews and Gentiles are justified by God on the same basis of faith. The gospel unifies diverse people by providing them with a shared identity in Christ. Through faith in Jesus, believers become part of a new spiritual family united by their relationship with God and their common faith in Jesus as their Savior. The gospel breaks down barriers of division and it destroys prejudice. It teaches that all believers are equal before God regardless of their ethnicity or their social standing. It calls for love and acceptance and unity among believers. It promotes reconciliation and harmony within the body of Christ. You see, it upholds the law. And we see that in verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. In verse 31, Paul affirms that while the cross is a means of justification, it also upholds the law. Rather than nullifying the law, the cross confirms its significance. Through the cross, we're directed to Jesus for salvation, demonstrating the law's purpose. The cross confirms the law by showing the payment for transgressions. Furthermore, it opposes the notion of antinomianism, rejecting the idea that Christ can be your Savior without being your Lord. The cross emphasizes the importance of obedience to God's commands and the lordship of Christ in our lives. In the practice of faith, we follow the Savior and we find our assurance and our peace in him. By trusting in Jesus and relying on his righteousness, not our own works, our conscience is at ease. It can be at ease. Through faith, we embrace the truth of salvation, that it's a gift from God, that it's received by grace alone, and our souls find rest in him. Paul's message regarding the righteousness of God imputed to us should put the believer's conscience at ease. 
It should give us rest. This message holds great significance for the believer's conscience, offering peace and assurance. We've addressed the problem of conscience. The law reveals our sin and guilt, causing our conscience to accuse us before God. And our attempts to earn righteousness through our own works only add to our burden. It is recognizing our need for God's provision. That's where we find true relief, where we find true rest. And we've examined the provision of God's righteousness through faith in Jesus. God has graciously provided righteousness as a free gift. Christ's sacrificial death on the cross satisfies God's wrath and justifies us. This act of grace gives us peace with God and puts our conscience at ease. Our righteousness is no longer dependent on our own efforts. And we delved into the practice of faith. We learned that humility is essential in recognizing that salvation is a gift received through faith. And we saw that unity of believers in Christ that transcends societal divisions. Additionally, we learned that the gospel upholds the law by fulfilling its righteous demands through Christ. Paul's message about the righteousness of God imputed to us brings peace to the believer's conscience, removes guilt. Through faith in Jesus, God has graciously given us the righteousness of Christ as a free gift. This gift satisfies our guilt and brings us peace. Understanding and embracing this message allows Christians to experience peace and security that comes from knowing that our righteousness is based on Christ's work, not our own. Amen. Lord, we do come to you and we do confess that we are often, often tempted to pick up guilt. And Lord, we are often robbed of the joy that we should have in the freedom that you've provided for us in Christ. Oh Lord, we would ask that you would strengthen our faith. We would ask that you would keep our eyes on Christ. That we would rejoice, that we would live in the freedom that you've given us. We're grateful. We're grateful for the gospel. Lord, we'd ask that you'd hear our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.